the land, focus on the ego. Open my heart, let go of the ego. Ran out the ground, I'm stacking up these C notes. Fast, fast. Fuck it, we gon' put this shit on our back. Chico, my squad got the Chico. Came in a drought, yeah, they starving the people. Blaming the doubt, make it harder to eat, yo. Not a placebo, that's not a placebo. Okay. The food, the art, the clothes. the clothes. We put this show on the road. The, the Vatican getting exposed. Yeah. You better stay on your toes. Repo, telling the land, focus on the ego. Open my heart, let go of the ego. Ran out the ground, I'm stacking up these C notes. Thanks, thanks. Fuck it, we gon' put this shit on our back. Fuck it, we gon' put this shit on our PCU and yours, PCU and yours, PCU and yours. You are now rocking with the best. Yes, this is your brother Red Pill. And you are in Melanin Mondays, episode 224. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> 
Yes, yes, yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Peace to the family. Peace to you and yours. Welcome, 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 welcome. All right, all right. Yeah, man. All right, all right. Yes, yes. Definitely. Big tune, big tune, big tune. Yeah, yeah. And um, <clears throat> I was on Spotify this weekend, and I actually made a Spotify playlist for God Hop. I'll be sure to drop that in the uh, in the description. But um, I might have to take back what I've said about streaming platforms because I saw I see the importance of the streaming platforms, and um, I'm gonna start feeding those streaming platforms more music. Because I realize I have a limited catalog up there and it's doing pretty well, too. You know, what I mean, I get a lot of monthly listeners. I'm getting a lot of spins. And I saw I went into the payouts, nigga. Yeah, I saw numbers, bro. Like, it's some, you know, shit. I went and picked a bag up that I didn't even know was there. So. Uh, I might turn, you know, I, I might I might show some uh, some faith in those platforms. But I know that that business model eventually is going to 10x. And when it 10x's and when it 100x's, you are really going to see the value in the arts. You know, music being definitely one of it. But you'll see it in other places, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to go crazy. So right now, the 0001 cent, <clears throat> that is something that has the potential to be disrupted. Think about that, right? Since time, since since uh, the music business has been a business, they've had this business model where they were piecing off the artists a fraction of a penny, right? And people have been able to build fortunes off of that mathematical equation, although all bite, you know that it's completely disrespectful, especially when they were selling albums for 1999. And then some people had the audacity to sell it for $30 and the artists were still getting paid uh, fractions on a penny, right? They was into Bitcoin and altcoins and shitcoins all the way back then. These were early adopters. These were early adopters. You know what I'm talking about? They've been, they, they've been getting shitcoins for a whole minute. <laughs> they should know. They should... They should be doing a lot more courses on that shit, you know? But anyway, that business model will definitely get disrupted. But I said all of that to say Spotify. You feel me? That part. Uh, let me see if I could drop the link for the playlist. I got it right in front of me. Let me pull it up because I want y'all to vibe out because the playlist Got about a hundred. I got 99 songs on one of my playlists called Guy Hop 23. But when I tell you this shit got all of the bangers, I'm talking about my goodness. Let me see if I could get the link. Share. Boom. Copy link to playlist. Copied. Okay. We might be like, oh, hold on. Let me see. I'm going to drop it in the queue. Boom. There you go. All right, let's do the roll call. I dropped the playlist. This is for Spotify, right? Make sure y'all go and rock that out. That right there is, is something that you could, you know, that's 99 songs that will definitely, uh, you know, help you with your frequency upgrade and feed your soul. 
You know what I'm talking about? With some real music. Bars, beats, you know, the whole package. Not just one or two things. The whole damn package. So, yeah. Do your thing. So, let's do the roll call and let's get into tonight's um, presentation because it's going to be a slide presentation. I'm going in my lecture bag. This is a freebie from me be to you be. You know what I'm talking about? And um, yeah, we're gonna go in tonight. So strap in, get your notepads and whatnot, and let's uh, let's let's go to class on this day of MLK. You know what I'm saying? What we'll be calling tonight ML Koof, as in Mount Koof. So let's do the uh, roll call. Sanford in the building. Sanford, Florida. Peace to Sanford. Yes, yes. Harlem. Ah, uh, Virgin Islands, of course. You know what I'm talking about? VI in the building. <laughs> Yes, indeed. We got San Jose, California. We got SC, of course. You know, I'm talking about East Flatbush in the building. Dayton, Ohio. Tremont, BX. Shout out to all of my KT aliens. I see y'all always in the building. Stone Mountain in the building. But of course, he said, I've been to the mountaintops. You know what I'm talking about? He said, I've been to the mountaintops. I seen the mountaintops. I felt that when he said that this time around. I'm like, I understand what he's saying. I know what he's talking about. He's talking about Stone Mountain. You know what I'm talking about? Our people made it to the mountaintops. Phoenix, North Carolina, Pittsburgh, East Flatbush. Shout out to the East Flatbush. Badmandem. West Virginia, Chino Hills, Riverdale, Houston. Of course, of course. Cleveland, of course. T-Dot, of course. Chirac, of course. North Crack, of course. Rhode Island, of course. You know what I'm talking about? My eyes are seeing the glory. You ain't said nothing but a word. Let's we'll get that. Uh, we'll get that sound drop uh, before the night is over. That's not a problem. D Town in the building, uh, Electric City. If Black Light is in the building. If you could send me some clips or some sound bites, that uh, matter of fact, all of those producers that have emailed me, they tracks and whatnot, and it's like, yo, Red, I, I get busy, so I'm a producer. If you can, go ahead and chop up some sound bites, some 30 second sound bites from MLK, and email them to uh, the Mark 125th, and I'm going to drop it in my system so I could play that throughout the show. We could turn up with the, uh, with the good Reverend and whatnot, because his sound bites is fire. One thing about Martin Luther King that nobody could take away from him is the orator, you know, the vernacular. You feel me? The delivery. You know what I'm talking about? He, he, yeah, he had that shit down to a science. The end, the, uh, the neuralistic programming, the NLP out this bitch, the breathing techniques. Speaking from my diaphragm. He was tapping in. The passion, right? He was tapping in like there's there's a lot of brothers out there that had that was sharp with it and whatnot. Nothing to take away from anybody because this is not we not cockfighting. You know what I'm talking about? We out we not out here selling baby dogs and whatnot where we comparing noses and you know nah this ain't that. You know what I mean? We ain't in the combine. You know everybody. I'm allowing everybody to be great. You know what I mean? This is the this is the X Men. You know what I'm talking about? As people, uh, everybody got their own powers. 
Yeah, that's definitely from that preacher and that church upbringing. You, you, right? So if nobody gets nothing out of the church, at least they leave with the organs. No pun intended. You know what I mean? At least they leave with the know-how to to conjure up some type of um, musical atmosphere, a sound bed and whatnot. It can be enchanting, uplifting, or they could officiate a funeral. You know what I mean? So, <clears throat> yeah, but everybody's in the building and whatnot. I don't even want to talk out of depth. Let's go right into the situation because we could be here all night. But make sure you yeah, yeah, definitely make sure y'all check out that uh the Spotify playlist. It's fire. I curated it myself. And um if you have other people that y'all want to recommend, you know, I'll be willing to check them out as well. One moment. Keynote files are not supported, exported to PDF. Yeah, give me one minute. I just got to do a little bit of technical work. But um, somebody said that they can't wait for that Scorpion King part two. Yeah, I can't wait for it either. The name on Spotify, Red Pillar. That's my name. I got a check next to my name. Yeah, I'm certified too, by the way. On um, you know, I got the blue check. If I don't got it on uh, them other things, they gave me the blue check on uh, Spotify and whatnot. And it's Red Pillar and it's God Hop 23, right? As in the year, God Hop 23. As a matter of fact, let me just do this real quick. So I could show y'all what it looks like. Um,
If y'all can't find it by searching for it, let me know. Please choose a smaller file. If it ain't one thing, it's another. All right, let me go ahead and let me pull it up from my phone and see if it's uh visual enough. Can y'all see the screen with the, uh, or do you just see black? All right, yeah, I see it's black too. Give me one minute. Share the screen. All right, give me one minute. It should be working now. Okay, it's unlocked. Oh, what's the issue now? Oh, there we go. What the hell? Chrome has lost permission to capture your screen. Unlock the screen by selecting the lock. Check Google Chrome. Uncheck. Restart. Okay, it says I got to restart it. So if it goes blank, it's just because I'm restarting. Yeah, dig? Give me one minute. I'm troubleshooting in real time. But believe you me, uh, this information is worth it. So, you know, 
I can bring up the retrograde, but I'm going to bring up the retrograde. Ladies and gentlemen. Quit and reopen. Let's just quit and reopen. Yeah, let's go. Leaves. Yep, let's see if it works. Let's cross our fingers. King was a CIA agent. Anytime the base would name a street for you, you're working with them. Hmm. Matter of fact, let me try to do something else. Because what I'm going through to is a file issue. It's saying that the file is too big, so it's rejecting it. And as I'm trying to share my screen, there's something that's popping up saying... Yeah, I'm back. I'm back, I'm back. Please choose a smaller file. The size limit is 50 MBs. All right, let me see what size this is. Let me check it out. Size information. Two hundred and one MBs. Damn. Okay, so what app should I use? If there's a file that's two hundred and one megabytes, what's a good app to use to compress it to be fifty megabytes? Let me know. And also before I even begin. Tonight's episode is to be pre prefaced or prefaced or prefaced with the episode, the blue pill, 
did earlier that just got uploaded is on this page. I'll have it actually at the end of this video. And um, even in post-production, I'll have the link right above my head. It'll pop up right here. Okay. So that's the video that I suggest you watch before you watch this video, before I go into this lecture and whatnot, because there's some things that Blue Pill touched on expertly, right? And I'm just coming to bring the visual components of it to back up what it is that he was building on about some of the things that were enacted, that rolled out, and that has affected our people as a people, right? As a race of people, um, politically, you know, on many different levels, ever since the assassination of this man right here, right? For better or for worse, who am I to judge? Condemn, I won't even entertain conversations of that. I'm just saying, hypothetically, you know, this man was, um, like Blue Pill said, one of the last known leaders, right? That fit the, 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 the check boxes, that, you know, that fit the criteria, you know what I'm talking about, to be somebody who was leading our grandparents. And for some of us, even our parents in their lifetime with his word, right? And to some degree, his actions and to some degree, right? His conviction and to some degree, his religion. But for what is worth, right? We know that the void that was left as a result of this man's absence gives you an indication to the importance, right? And the relevancy and the effectiveness of this man. Okay. So there were some things that I was witnessing or seeing for that matter over the strong end, you know, doing my research, getting my mind right and whatnot, you know, and um, <clears throat> I saw the uh, the pictures, you know, that were coming out with the desecration of, you know, like flyers and whatnot, you know what I'm saying? For Martin Luther King, they kind of had him looking crazy, you know what I'm saying? With the case of Migos. Let me see if I could Google that. You know, and I was like, damn, every year they do this. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, I, you know, I can't say that I get it, but I understand what kind of people I know who we dealing with. You feel me? I'm not, I'm not blind to the fact I know who we dealing with. I know what's going on with the, <laughs> with the, with the, with the youth and with certain generations. I know where their minds is at, you know, I know that they take it there. But I'm like, damn, I don't really see no shit like this going on in nobody else's culture. You know? I don't, you don't really see that, man. You don't see Gandhi, uh, that you don't see the people in Gandhi doing that, you know, uh with, with some of you know, the people in India doing that with uh one of their figures. 
regardless of what I feel about Gandhi personally, politically, and who I, you know, who he truly is, you still don't see his people desecrating his image. You don't see that. You know that they know that there's a line that you don't cross, right? So they saying in drill music that you're not supposed to do what? You're not supposed to speak on the dead, right? That that's a curse. Curse yourself when you speak on the dead and whatnot. That's what that's the whole thing. They say, you know, them rappers is cursed because they, you know, they rap, they they talk about the dead, you know, they disrespecting. So that goes to show that your image is sacred. Right. And so is your name for that nature, for that matter. You keep one's name and you keep one's image to the highest of degree when they're gone. The minute they become part of what is known as satire or you begin to make something of a joke of them, that means that you disrespect their memory. You disrespect their spirit. You disrespect for what they stood for. You disrespect their purpose. You somewhat kind of like, uh, you know, you're, you're sanitizing their role in history. And I, that's not to sound too preachy. And that's not to sound too matter-of-factly. But I'm just saying, the shit looks crazy. You know what I'm talking about? They got Rosa Parks and Harriet Tubman at the hookah bar. Come on now. To this day! To this day! I just wanted to be in the design session and in, 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 inside of that uh inside of that that motherfucking um that room where that flyer was getting cooked up at. And you wonder why we rolling with uh artificial intelligence with art generation, uh the the generators and whatnot, because niggas is tired of humanity. <laughs> Look at what y'all did to MLK. Look at what all of you graphic designers that said the AI is finna take your job. Look at the job that y'all doing, though, before AI come along. You know what I'm talking about? Imagine if Midjourney was putting out flyers. Everybody that's fake woke, they be having all kind of, um, you know, they be having to die suddenly and whatnot. Heart attacks. You know what I'm talking about? If AI did this, it'd be a problem. Yo, we got to shut it down. It's, enti it's, it's high, entirely racist. It done lost its mind. It went rogue on us. It's disrespecting a big homie. But these is niggas from Fiverr, bro. These the same people that's beefing about goddamn Linza. This is what humans are doing. This is what humans are doing. So I was like, nah, I'm not, you know, I, I had to take some time out of my day, right? I took some time out of my day and I was like, nah, I'm going to reverse the curse. You know, I'm not going to even go to the humans this time around. I'm going to go to my good friends over there and, you know, and with the almighty intelligence. <laughs> I'm going to go to my generators. Generator, operator, destroyer. Then they tell you that was what God was. Well, stable diffusion and mid journey, that's called AI generators.
right? So generator, operator, destroyer. I can use the generator to operate some shit to destroy. To this day. To this day. I promise you. So I went and had a conversation with my good friends over there at Mid Journey and we start cooking. And then I took that and I added more things to it and whatnot and made it something specific and whatnot. And I start flooding these images around the internet where they should, um, you know, I just put it where I wanted it to be. Right? Where it belongs on a piece of cotton. You know what I'm talking about? So I went ahead and put it on some cotton. You know, where it belongs. And I've been having a beautiful day today, courtesy of some people over there at Etsy that's been buying up a lot of T-shirts and a lot of artwork and whatnot, you know, uh, of their of their good brother, MLK, because they don't want to see those statues that they got up. But that's not good enough. They spent $10 million. If they gave me $10 million, imagine what I would have gave them back. Not one piece of bronze statue of uh, some arms just hugging each other, right? I wouldn't give you, I wouldn't give you that. You know what I'm talking about? I wouldn't give you the, uh, you know, the headless fucking, uh, the headless uh, cork statue, nigga. I would have gave you some sauce, and you might, you probably could have put it in fifty states. Fuck just Boston. With 10 mil, we could have set up some shit, some legendary shit in all 50 states. It would have been the illest art installation for the good reverend. Like, what is this? What are we doing, Pam? This is what they spent $10 million on in Boston. Boston of all places. The name, the, the, the reason that they said that they chose to do it in Boston is because that's where him and Coretta had pulled up on each other, I think, at a lecture. Right? I think it was a lecture or something. Hold on, let me pull up the, uh, the image. So there's like, yo, we built these arms to represent them embracing. We built these. We This is the $10 million sculpture. That's missing a head. Right? This is a $10 million sculpture. Of Martin Luther King. Supposedly embracing. Coretta Scott King. Look at the close up fam. Right? This is from a black artist, too, by the way. Right? But this is what they passing off as art. You know what I'm talking about? In Boston, of all places. And we know how they get down in Boston. Right? And we know what's going on with Boston. You understand? And then we add in the simple fact of the government being the ones that, you know, are ultimately responsible for this man's demise. This right here seems more ritualistic to me than anything. Like, I, I don't see what. And, it, you know, I saw. Like, fam, what are we doing here? 
What that look like? Come on, family. People coming out to see that. So. Yeah. I'm like, nah, man. <laughs> we as a people, because these, you know, the when you think about it, look, and this is a these are this is what we get as a, this is what they're giving us as a people, though. This is what they're delivering to us. You feel me? And there's nothing against George Floyd whatsoever. Salute to that man. Right? Salute to that man. But it's like, these are the statues that our people are going to be, you know, remembered by. Right? But they're not putting up statues of our other ancestors. You understand? We're not getting, where's the Dr. Savy statue, bro? You know, where's the Dr. Ben statues? And I'm, you know, I would, that would be considered niche. There's so many of our other great inventors, the thousand black inventors, you know, their bronze statues don't stand, but all of the Confederacy statues, they, they're proliferated. There are thousands of them spread across the Americas, mostly on these ley lines and stuff like that. I have the maps. The daughters of the American Revolution, they were responsible for getting those statues erected. We're talking about war criminals, right? Hitler's on this land. They got statues and... You know, what are they giving us? Or what are we giving ourselves? Because it ain't even like a hand-me-down. What are we giving ourselves? What's happening? You know. The Afro-Americans got Afro picks. As. You know. I guess as a thank you. You know. As a thank you? Thank you for your nine ether? Do you know what I'm talking about? So, I want to go over the dream that Dr. King had. And I want to really see if this is dreams and nightmares. Right? I want to begin to document the path that our people took, right, individually and collectively after the removal of Dr. Martin Luther King, right? That is very important. That is a very, very important timeline to examine all the way up into this point. And of course, you know, I won't have the ability to uh, give you a full on demonstration because this is just a show tonight. But these are actually notes that are going to be turned into a documentary. So 
I'm just giving you some of the storyboard, but um, yeah, it's, it's a lot to get into. It's a lot. It is a lot. Start a GoFundMe and put up our own statues. Um, that or this, there's many other options that you can examine other than that, but that is definitely an option. I, I do agree with that. That's very doable. That may be the easiest option, you know, in terms of the amount of people who know how that works and are familiar with that program. Yes, that may be the easiest way to begin to erect these statues in places so their memories are, you know, forever, forever etched in stone, for etched in marble, etched in bronze, etched in gold. You know, that's definitely something that we should look into. You feel me? It's okay. Let me. Um... You was watching the speech you did on Stone Mountain. You was trying to repost it, but it wouldn't let you. No surprise. You know, no surprise. I'm just in the back office, just working, um, working this back office, getting this thing opened up. All right. There we go. We should be good. Let me see if it clicks on my phone. Gooch. Okay. So this information that I will be sharing with you, family, it is from the uh, source material and the, um, the actual lecture that was entitled Blood Moonologues, right? Featuring Red Pillar, Blue Pillar. We did this 
in January of 2019, January 19th to be exact. So right on the time, right on the nose of where we are right now, this happens to be in 2019, right? Right there in Bed-Stuy at Nicholas Bookstore. Shout out to Monique, right? Three-headed monster, the war on poverty, drugs, and terror, okay? And as you can see by the flyer, we had Nixon, Reagan, and Bush as the three-headed uh, monsters, okay? Like I was saying earlier, when I saw the statue of MLK that was headless and there was outcry, people were like, man, that shit crazy, man. Y'all disrespecting the elder. Y'all keep doing this. I said to myself, shit, let me go and do some research about how he's been depicted in other situations because I figured that this one wasn't as rare as we may have thought it was, you know, I've come to find out that this is an ongoing trend where his image, right? His pristine, his image, his likeness, okay? Is being distorted and erased, you know, and just disrespected by the poor art, you know, that they are putting out there for people to identify with this man. You understand? There should be limits. To have people are depicted by these artists. You know what I'm talking about? Because if they not going to do, you know, that's that's one of those, man. If you don't got something nice to say, just don't say it. Like, how y'all going to come along and start doing renditions of somebody and the shit come out looking like this and y'all have a problem with AI? Nah, they, they, you got, <laughs> listen, fam, let me tell you something. This shit is not, you know what I mean? Like, this is disrespectful. Okay? I don't care what nobody say. What the hell is that? That's not even his fingers, bro. Look at those fingers. That's not MLK fingers. Who fingers is that? He was from um he was from Edgewood. ATL ho, he ain't had no skinny fingers like that. But listen, I want to share with you what was going on during the, the 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 his last days, and what was the conversation, and what was the narrative, and what came about as a result of initiatives that he was heading, spearheading attaching his name to what was the response by the government after his assassination that began to put our people in a predicament right in a social engineering program that was basically that has affected you know rightfully so maybe every single person on this phone tonight on this line on this live i can't speak for nobody else but everybody has uh, uh, they'll have a, a, a great overstanding, understanding, understanding about how all of this shit relates by the time we're finished with this tonight. Definitely make sure you have something to drink on, sip on, you know, uh, relax, you know, but take some notes, you know, 
because we'll we'll be we'll be going uh, very detailed through some information. So the war on poverty, right? The war on poverty. What the fuck is poverty? The Stanford Center on Poverty and Inequality is a program of the Institute of Research in Social Sciences, IRIS. Support from the Elfin Works Foundation gratefully acknowledged this work and paper series as a grant in April 1967 at the Riverside Church meeting. He explained how Johnson's war was actually a war on the poor. There is at the outset a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in the Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then became the buildup in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated as if it were some idle political plaything of a society going mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies and rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. In 1967, Kings and grassroots civil rights activists launched a poor people's campaign whose goals were an economic bill of rights, economic bill of rights and a true national recognition of the alienation of the poor in affluent times. You are in those times again, family. I just want to remind you of that in case you have no idea you are in those times right now all over again as this paper will argue the poor people's campaign had a vexed relationship with johnson's war on poverty for it was meant to be its cohesive alternative while building upon the bottom-up mobilization the community action programs had spawned but whereas johnson designed his policies to redress past racial wrongs King used the language of class. Okay. Beyond Vietnam, a time to break silence, Orville referred to as the Riverside Church speech, is an anti Vietnam War and pro social justice speech delivered by MLK on April the 4th, 1967. Shout out to the Blue Pillar, Law 44. Exactly one year before he was assassinated okay the major speeches at riverside church in new york city followed several interviews and several other public speeches in which king came out against the vietnam war and the policies that created it right so a year to the day when he started speaking out against the vietnam war when he pivoted right right in the riverside church right in harlem this place is a ancient cathedral i've been in there many times it's majestic i let me tell you if anybody's from harlem and you've been in a riverside church let me see that in the chat let them know about that place okay and his spirit mlk spirit is very heavy heavy heavily uh intertwined 
in the walls of that church and whatnot. So he set it off, and then a year to that, he gets knocked off, right? So this is what put him in a scope. And he started doing this. Some, like civil rights leader Ralph Bunch, the NAACP, and the editorial page writers of the Washington Post and the New York Times, called the Riverside Church speak a mistake on King's part. The New York Times editorial suggested that conflating the civil rights movement with the anti-war movement was an oversimplification that did justice to neither, stating that linking these hard, complex problems will lead not to the solutions, but to deeper confusion. Others, including James Bevel, King's partner and strategist in the civil rights movement, called it King's most important speech. It was written by activist and historian Vincent Harding, right? Ghost writers. That is definitely something that is very important. Speech writers, right? Speech writers. For those of you who understand the importance of a speech writer, um, yeah. King delivered the speech sponsored by the group of clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam after committing to participate in New York April 15, 1967's anti-Vietnam war march from Central Park to United Nations, right? Federal money and power was used to dismantle segregation and emancipate blacks from economic exploitation. Recent and compelling scholarship has indeed vindicated the far-reaching economic gains of the civil rights bills. The right to work in industries previously segregated, including public services, opened major opportunities for black workers. As Gavin Wright shows, the economic impact of such measures on the upward mobility of black Americans was significant in the South. He demonstrates, for instance, how the opening to black workers of the textile industry, the most extreme case of segregation, was a true accomplishment of the Civil Rights Act. Examples abound of the ripple effects of the Civil and Voting Rights Act on the economic life of black America. The freedom to vote and the ability to elect officials of their choice increased state distributions to localities with higher proportions of black residents. Courting the black vote, Southern legislators transferred more funds to black localities, allocating most of the money to education in black counties. Such shifts in the distribution of state funds proved crucial in improving black socioeconomic status. It has also been documented that black elected officials in mostly black areas, particularly black mayors, had a positive impact on black unemployment on their constituents. That is not me speaking about this. These are Europeans and uh, it's Nye, Rayner and Stratman 2010. Okay. If New Deal policies alleviated white poverty but failed to address blacks predicament, the great society liberalization of public assistance help blacks as well as white families raise their incomes. Johnson's gestures towards corrective justice was relevant. 
the expansion of social welfare programs significantly benefited to the poor and both desegregation and affirmative action policies boosted the black middle class. Yet the great society at its core feature, the war on poverty, had its pernicious, pernicious effects. Initially supported by public opinion, Johnson's anti-poverty programs became unpopular when they became associated with racial issues. Juan Drago, 1995, sex revolutions of the 60s afforded whites the right to experiment in drugs and free sex. Theirs was mind-altering, non-inhabitant lab-made psychedelics, hence the rise of the rainbow children. Sex revolution of the 70s and the 80s afforded blacks the right to experiment in drugs and free sex. Theirs was cocaine, free basin, PCP, and ultimately crack cocaine. Lab-made substances as well. Non-inhibition to traditional roles in sex, i.e. suppression by the church, results in super freaks. Super freaks, they super freaky. KRS said it best. The girlies are free because the crack costs money. Oh, yeah. The white baby boomers would have a cushion to capture them, them being trust fund babies. Blacks will fall through the holes in the pissy mattresses. No support to catch them falling. No springboard. DMX said it best. Ayo, I'm slipping. I'm falling. I can't get up. While Malcolm more so represented the best efforts for student enrollment, King positioned himself of the black citizen, whether Muslim or Christian. So this is just a breakdown of when Pluto is in these different constellations, the procession of the equinox and how it affects, you know, the world that we're living in. So around that time, Pluto and Scorpio, the 83, 84, 85, around those times, <clears throat> the positive attributes for the Pluto and Virgo generation. The Pluto and Leo generations is the first overall generation to earn less money than their parents, mostly Pluto and Cancer, and is known as Generation X and the slacker generation. While this may seem like a negative attribute, it also led to a sense of being able to find yourself despite outside pressure to conform to society. In many cases, this is what is responsible for the decrease in income between this generation and their parents, because one of the challenges for the Pluto and Virgo generation is to overcome societal expectations by following your heart in all areas of life, including what type of employment you desire. This is what led to the green revolution and the drastic changes in health and exercise. The reason why many people are awakening right now is greatly attributed to the Pluto and Virgo generation who took the love energies of the 60s and the early 70s and transformed them into revolutionary changes in all areas of life through activism and computer technologies. For example, N5D currently reaches over 1 million people every month using computer technologies as a platform for like-minded people and soul groups while this emanating information that facilitates even more spiritual growth for all Pluto generations. The Pluto and Leo generation had the right idea, such as peaceful protests, the summer of love, 
and the make love not war movements, but lack the organizational structure to create long term positive change for society. The Pluto and Virgo generation has taken these loving energies and used them to create change, not only for themselves, but for the world through various websites based on health, well-being, nutrition, spirituality and innovation. Those born with Pluto and Virgo have a strong desire to help other people and are less self-centered than the previous generations. Some may present on a one-on-one -on -one basis, such as with Reiki or as a life coach, while others may silently help others. To, by hiding your true self, you are not allowing those who are like-minded to enter your life. Also, there is a good chance that some of your friends are doing the same, but you are too concerned about what other people think about you to even talk about it around them. In the end, you'll find great satisfaction by being true to yourself. While it may cost you some friends, would it be better to have three amazing friends who, exact, who accept you exactly for who you are versus 100 acquaintances who are all superficial and materialistic? Unfortunately, many people will live their entire lives without truly knowing who they are while pretending to be what society expects them to be. The Pluto and Virgo generation mirrored a similar trait that the Pluto and Leo generation experienced. The Pluto and Leo generation greatly value self-expression, but also community, while creative cognitive dissonance between love for self and others, because many in the Pluto and Virgo generation remember the energies created by the Pluto and Leo generation that may have experienced substance abuse on many levels, which creates cognitive dissonance and leading an orderly life. One last challenge is in the areas of being over analytical and over critical in their thinking process. If you are in a Pluto and Virgo generation, then there is a good chance that you overthink situations too many times when the answer might be simple and obvious to others. Welcome, Indigos. Many people who incarnated during this generation and beyond Pluto.
Yo, I did not know that I was not here. I had no idea. I'm I was so much into the lecture. My my genius, my guys. This shit crazy. I literally looked up and then I read the I read the uh the damn thing. My bad. This shit crazy. When did my picture go down? Like when when did you when when did the sound go away? What did you last hear me say? I'll go backwards and cover that. Okay, after Pluto and Virgo, I'll go, all right, I'll go back and cover that. No problem. So this Pluto and Virgo thing is very deep, right? I, I definitely want us to be able to get this. So I'm going to go back over it. Um, and you could pause the video and do whatever you want to do to go and do more further research on this. Okay, the Pluto and Leo generation is the first overall generation to earn less money than their parents, mostly Pluto and Cancer, and is known to Generation X as the slacker generation. While this may seem like a negative attribute, it is also to lead a sense of being able to find yourself despite outside pressure to conform to society. In many cases, this is what is responsible for the decrease in income between this generation and their parents, because one of the challenges for the Pluto and Virgo generation is to overcome societal expectations by following your heart in all areas of life, including what type of employment you desire. The reason why many people are awakening right now is greatly attributed to the Pluto and Virgo generation who took the love energies of the 1960s and the early 1970s and transform them into revolutionary changes in all areas of life through activism and computer technologies. For example, IN5D currently reaches over 1 million people every month using computer technologies as a platform for like-minded people and soul groups while disseminating information that facilitates even more spiritual growth for all Pluto generations. The Pluto and Leo generation had the right idea, such as peaceful protests, the summer of love and the make love, not war movements, but lacked the organizational structure to create long term positive change for society. The Pluto and Virgo generation has taken those loving energies and used them to create change for not only themselves, but for the world through various websites based on health, well-being, nutrition spirituality and innovation those born with pluto and virgo have a strong desire to help other people and are less self-centered than the previous generation by hiding your true self you are not allowing those who are like-minded to enter your life also there is a good chance that some of your friends are doing the same thing but you are too concerned about what other people might think about you to even talk about it around them in the end, you will find great satisfaction by being true to yourself. While it may cost you some friends, 
Would it be better to have three amazing friends who accept you exactly for who you are versus a hundred acquaintances who are all superficial and materialistic? Unfortunately, many people will live their entire lives without truly knowing who they are while pretending to be what society expects them to be. The Pluto and Virgo generation mirrored a small trait that the Pluto and Leo generation experience. The Pluto and Leo generation greatly value self-expression, but also community, which created cognitive dissonance between love for self and others. Because many in the Pluto and Virgo generation remember the energies created by the Pluto and Leo generation, they may have experienced substance abuse on many levels, which creates cognitive dissonance and leading an orderly life. Our last challenge is in the areas of being over analytical and overcritical in their thinking process. If you are in the Pluto and Virgo generation, then there is a good chance that you overthink situations too many times when the answer may be simple and obvious to others. Welcome, Indigos. Many people who incarnated during this generation and beyond. Pluto and Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn are also known as indigo children who came here with advanced DNA and metaphysical abilities. Most of your parents are from the Pluto and Virgo or Pluto and Leo generations. While they experience their own sense of craziness as youths, they have a hard time understanding what you're, what you're going through or how you express yourself. Even though you choose your parents before you incarnated here and they are part of your soul group, Many of your parents forgot how your uniqueness would change the world or try to change you into their versions of what is acceptable to society through their eyes, not through yours, right? Pluto and Libra, the natal meaning. People with Pluto and a Libra have a good sense of balance, but because Pluto is falling in this sign, it can also bring about sudden and profound changes in their family or unexpected changes in relationships. In general, this position brings fears and uncertainties to relationships. These people are adaptable and responsible for their relationships, but they are also unstable. Personal transformation could be accomplished by developing the ability to relate to other people, right? Pluto, Pluto astrology meaning transformation, regeneration power. Pluto is the planet of death and rebirth. It's the end of all things. It can give rise to obsessions or convictions. It can create an individual who has the ability to get to the core of things, destroy negative things, and bring on healing and transformation. Okay? So, yes. If New Deal policies alleviated white poverty but failed to address black predicament, the great society <clears throat> liberalization of public assistance help blacks as well as white families raise their incomes. Johnson's gesture towards corrective justice was relevant. The expansion of social welfare programs significantly benefited to the poor in both <coughs> Desegregation and affirmative action policies boosted the black middle class. Yet the great society and its core feature, the war on poverty, have had pernicious effects. Initially supported by public opinion, Johnson's anti-poverty programs became unpopular when they had 
become associated with racial issues. The sex revolution of the 60s afforded whites the right to experiment in drugs and free sex. Theirs was mind-altering, non-inhabitant lab-made psychedelics, hence the rise of the rainbow children. The sex revolution of the 70s and the 80s afforded blacks the right to experiment in drugs and free sex. And theirs was cocaine, freebasin, PCP, and ultimately crack cocaine. Lab-made substances as well. Non-inhibition to traditional roles in sex, i.e. suppression by the church, results in super freak. KRS said it best, the girlies are free because the crack costs money. Oh, yeah. Right. Give me one minute. Let me pull this in there. The white baby boomers would have a cushion to capture them, them being trust fund babies. But the blacks will fall through the holes in the pissy mattresses. No support to catch them falling. No springboard. DMX said it best. Hey, yo, I'm slipping. I'm falling. I can't get up. To this day. You know. To this day. While Malcolm was more so representing the best efforts for student enrollment, King positioned himself of the black citizen, whether Muslim or Christian. Give me one minute. Y'all all right? Everybody good? I'm just checking on you. Go get you some water or something if you're thirsty. Pluto and Scorpio in 1983. Okay, so of course we are familiar with the 60s and the assassinations that began to take place, right? And the way that they were able to alter the course of history in so many ways with these very, very high profile assassinations, especially of JFK, MLK, and his brother, JFK's brother. And with the assassination of JFK came the appointment of his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, LBJ, as the president, right? And that began to shift the conversations that 
MLK was having with the likes of the JFKs of the world and other things to a whole nother place. And we'll cover that in a minute. But this sent shockwaves through the world and especially as Blue pointed out earlier, through the hearts of Black America, right? Most importantly, the Nanas, right? The Black goddess, the woman, mama, big mama, right? When they took away MLK, it was like they took away their baby. You know what I'm saying? He was attached to the church. He was identified as an identifiable leader to a lot of, uh, of our people, Okay. When he took out El Malik, another MLK, you know, and then the riots, okay, the meltdown, the explosion, right, the war on poverty, okay, the first, you know, this is when this is this is when it started because keep in mind, if the government is responsible for the execution of one of the leaders. They're behind it, then they've already planned the response, and they actually were anticipating, you know, it, there's no way that they could be doing um, any type of prediction models and whatnot, and these cities burning doesn't come up as, you know, one of the most likely things that will happen. So these riots, of course, did not come as a surprise. They were suppressed. A lot of people lost their lives and it basically changed a lot the trajectory as well of these neighborhoods and keep in mind this is post integration right this is after <laughs> this is after the meltdown right so vietnam war becomes a big stain on a jacket of lbj right and it even rolls into a whole nother presidency right but what a lot of people don't know about this Dixie Democrat, because they think that there's something honorable about a Democrat and whatnot, is that this one, this one right here, you know, had uh, he was a he was a he was a uh, he wasn't even a closet racist. OK. President Lyndon B. Johnson once said, if you can't convince the lowest white man, he's better than the best colored man. He won't notice you're picking his pocket. He'll give you, he'll get you, hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. I'm going to repeat that. This is what this president said. If you can't convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. Come on. Is that not the route that uh, Trump took? Right? With those, with that, with that group of Europeans who previously were coming up as almost an endangered species based off of their mortality rate, right? That was the demographics that he was pitching to. Okay. White middle-aged white men, uh, middle-aged white men, whose mortality rates were were tripling. They were dying what was known as deaths of despair. We covered that for years on this um, platform. But he, but Trump came along and he made them feel better than the Mexicans, better than these niggas, 
He made them feel like they were worthy. And they emptied out their coffers for him and was there at every single turn because he spoke to their insecurities. Right? So Lyndon B. Johnson said, I'll have those niggas voting Democratic for the next 200 years. Right? Because what people don't realize, the Democrat wasn't always the thing that our people went for. When y'all hear Republican, y'all get offended right now, but we carried that Republican late into the 1900s, and that shit was effective because we did more as black Republicans than we've done as black fucking uh, Democrats. That's a fact. Let's face it, our ass is in a crack. We're going to have to let this nigga bill pass. That was Lyndon B. Johnson to Senator John C. Stennis during debate on Civil Rights Act of 1957, right? After spending time teaching impoverished Mexican-American immigrants on the borders of Texas and Mexico, Lyndon B. Johnson was inspired to bring an end to poverty, right? This is what he said inspired him to start the war on poverty. This administration here and now declares unconditional war on poverty, Right? This administration here and now. This administration here and now declares unconditional war on poverty. This additional. This additional. This administration. Declares war on unconditional poverty. There was never a war on poverty. Maybe there was a skirmish on poverty. That's what Andrew Cuomo says. Instead of war on poverty, they got a war on drugs so the police can bother me. That's what Tupac said. We fought a war on poverty and poverty won. That's what Ronald Reagan said. Some years ago, the federal government declared war on poverty and poverty won. That's Ronald Reagan talking. One of the most durable successes of the war on poverty was to dramatically reduce the number of elderly poor in America. That's still true today. To this day. To this day. But by contrast, child poverty has shot up over the last few years. A decade ago, about 16% of children in America were poor, which is a shockingly high percentage. But it's not as shocking as today when we see that 22% of kids live in poverty. That's what Sasha and Brass and Abrahamski said. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fire signifies in a final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spinning the sweat of his laborers, the genius of his scientists, the hopes of his children. This is not a way of life at all in any true sense. Under the clouds of war, it is humanity hanging on the cross of iron. That's the White D. Eisenhower, right? So I don't, people don't know how important or how um, detrimental this war on poverty was because, you know, the war on poverty is a way to mask up war on those people, right? The great society, right? So make America great again. The great society was a set of domestic programs in the United States launched by the Democratic president, LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson, 
The main goal was the elimination of poverty and racial injustice. President Johnson used the term great society during a speech at Ohio University, then unveiled the program in greater detail at an appearance at University of Michigan. New major spending programs that address education, medical care, urban problems, rural poverty, and transportation were launched during this period. The program and its initiatives were subsequently promoted by him and fellow Democrats in Congress in the 1960s and the years following. The Great Society in scope and sweep resembled the New Deal domestic agenda of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Some Great Society proposals were stalled initiatives from JFK's New Frontier. Johnson's success depended on the skills of persuasion, coupled with the Democratic landslide in the 1964 election that brought in many new liberals to Congress, making the House of Representatives in 1965 the most liberal House since 1938. Anti-war Democrats complained that spending on the Vietnam War choked a great society. While some of the programs have been eliminated or had their funding reduced, many of them, including, listen, Medicare, Medicaid, the Older Americans Act, federal education funding continue to the present. The Great Society's programs expanded under the administrations of Republican presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. The, the War on Poverty, the most ambitious and controversial part of the Great Society was its initiative to end poverty. The Kennedy administration had been contemplating a federal effort against poverty. Johnson, who, as a teacher, had observed extreme poverty in Texas among Me Mexican-Americans, launched the unconditional war on poverty in the first months of his presidency with the goal of eliminating hunger, illiteracy, and unemployment from American life. The centerpiece of the war on poverty was the Economic Opportunity Act of 1964 which created an Office of Economic Opportunity, OEO, to oversee a variety of community-based anti-poverty programs. Federal funds were provided for special education schemes in slum areas, including help in paying for books and transport, while financial aid was also provided for slum clearances and rebuilding city areas. In addition, the Appalachian Regional Development Act of 1965 created jobs in one of the most impoverished regions of the country. The Economic Opportunity Act of 1964 provided various methods through which young people from poor homes could receive job training in higher education. Medicare. The Social Security Act of 1965 authorized Medicare and provided federal funding for many of the medical costs of older Americans. Medicaid. In 1966, welfare recipients of all ages received medical care through the Medicaid program. Medicaid was created on July 30th, 1965 under Title X, uh, what's that, 20... Uh, X whatever of the Social Security Act of 1965. Each state administers its own Medicaid program while the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, monitors the state-run programs and establishes requirements for service delivery, quality funding, and eligibility standards, and then welfare. A number of improvements were made to the Social Security program in terms of both coverage 
inadequacy of benefits. The Tax Adjustment Act of 1966 included a provision for special payments under the Social Security program to certain uninsured individuals, age 72 and over. There we go. Education, the most important educational component of the great society was the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965, designed by Commissioner of Education Francis Keppel. It was signed into law on April 11, 1965, less than three months after it was introduced. It ended a long-standing political taboo by providing significant federal aid to public education, initially allocating more than $1 billion to help schools purchase materials and start special education programs to schools with a high concentration of low-income children. <coughs> public broadcasting, all right? It started public broadcasting, okay? Cultural centers, performing arts centers, all right? So this was very huge, okay? Very huge. Some remnants of Johnson idealistic great society survive today. Some see the great society as a success, moving the nation towards a more just and equitable society. Scholars largely agree that the Great Society made an impact. Johnson's programs increased Social Security benefits, greatly aiding the elderly poor, instituted Medicare, Medicaid, healthcare supports that ever conservative politicians today pledge to support, and assisted African Americans in the 1960s, whose income rose by half in a decade. The percentages of families living in poverty also declined. Still, the programs can never live up to their grand expectations, and its failures were evident as Americans became less supportive of government programs intended to solve great social issues. Ronald Reagan once famously declared that the federal government had declared war on poverty and that poverty won. Many politicians today echo that theme. Programs the great society directed to the poor remain controversial, while some arguing that they contributed to the decline of the family life amongst those in poverty. Many scholars, however, interpreted that or differently. One report indicates that the belief that the Great Society programs increase poverty is based on flawed studies. Programs such as food stamps, Medicare, Medicaid, and increases in widening of Social Security propelled a 26% decrease in poverty rates compared to 1960 before the Great Society was launched, okay? So it takes on a new meaning when you hear Make America Great Again, you know, it takes on a new connotation and stuff like that, you know, because uh, I wasn't taught about Great Society when I was in school. That's something they conveniently omitted from the, uh, you know, from my homework, from the pop-up quiz and some other things, okay? So... There was some articles that came out and it, uh, it it started a lot of conversations and whatnot. And one of these articles that was reflecting on um, the Monahan Report and what was known as the Great Society was an article by a brother by the name of Tanishi Coates in the Atlantic News, an Atlantic magazine called The Black Family in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Okay, and this Moynihan report was very important back in those times because what it was 
was a case study in a sense, you know, and it was almost like mm, a manifesto to a degree because it was able to predict things that are, it was almost like a manual, you know, I wrote me a manual step-by-step -step booklet for you to write something for politicians to follow, you know, um, source material and talking points and other things, you know, a thought piece. Okay. We'll get into that in a minute. 50 years later, was Johnson's war on poverty a success? Opponents of poverty of Johnson's war point to marginal decreases in poverty since 1965, down from 15% to 19% despite trillions of dollars spent. Claim Johnson's programs made people dependent on the government. Funding drained by the Vietnam War sharply decreased the effectiveness of many programs. OEO is dismantled by Nixon. However, those estimates don't take government intervention into account. Johnson's war has lifted millions of Americans out of poverty through programs such as Medicare, Medicaid, and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, and expanded Social Security benefits, right? So like Blue was saying, there's many people who have been beneficiaries of these programs. Shit, food stamps, nigga? Some SNAP, some Snappington, huh? Some Medicare, some Medicaid, like everybody knows, you know, what, what these programs have meant, regardless of people claim the negative effects of it and what it did and whatnot. We know that we've experienced, you know, the fact that, you know, you had a whole cart full of uh, food and you just swipe, swipe. Your ass ain't had to spend your cash. That was a good, <laughs> nigga, that was a good cart right there. All right. Many of Johnson's programs are also at work today. Head Start, Job Corps, and Vista, stuff like that. All right. This is the Moynihan Report. That's Moynihan right there. You know, man. Real, you know, he he he's real. That report right there. We speak on this on many occasions. Very detrimental to the uh, you know, it, it was it was. It was very controversial, too, at its time. Okay. So the Moynihan, the Negro family, the breakdown of the lower class black family leads to higher crime and poverty, increased drug use, matriarchal structure and weak family structure, retards the progress of the group, principal cause for antisocial behavior. Black scholars condemned the report. Matriarchy was a fundamental adaptation in a hostile world, diverted attention from positive trust, family assistance plan. So he said in his report, illegitimate births and divorce produce a tangle of pathology in the African-American family. It stated that African-Americans could only achieve equality with the establishment of a stable Negro family structure. He stated that African-Americans could only achieve equality with the establishment of a stable Negro family structure. Consider this pathology a product of the social realities of the new urban ghettos. Ignored resilience of the African-American family 
in its use of family extension to cope with poverty and single parenting. Ignored resilience of the African-American family in its use of family extension to cope with poverty and single parenting. So fast forward, you know, images like this become more relatable when you see that this is part of governmental policy that was somewhat predicted and encouraged by lawmakers, policymakers, you know, politicians who could forever shift the trajectory of where education is going, where social engineering is headed. You know, single parents account for 27% of family households with children under 18. More than 2 million fathers are the primary caregivers of children under 18. 62% increased since 1990. One in two children will live in a single parent family at some point in childhood. One in three children is born to unmarried. So that article that he put out has some merit to it because men lie, women lie, but these numbers don't, Right. And at the time that he wrote this, this was not the reality, but this was forecasted or this was planned, in my humble opinion, because that shit is a blueprint to white power. You know? These books are blueprints to their power. This is, you know, it's presented as a research or some kind of data but it's really a step-by-step -step booklet. Check this out. Moynihan's Tangle of Pathology. James T. Peterson Patterson's opinion piece. That's why the liberal judges, the liberal lawyers, you know, the officials that come up, the, the, the social workers, a lot of them are trained on these, on it's a must read as this literature is part of their education cycle. So their outlook and their programming, it's almost like feeding a data set to the machine learning and whatnot. They're being programmed by the writings of Moynihan, right? And based off Moynihan's vision or based off of Moynihan's manifesto, that's shaping the perception that these public officials have that's the eyes in which they're looking at you through. So when they see you, they're already able to identify you as the tangle of pathology because those are the terms that have been created to identify, right? What is in what, what they see in front of them, from judges to lawyers to politicians and everybody that falls underneath that umbrella. Okay, that's the beat that they're marching to. So, Moynihan's entitled The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. Okay, The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. <laughs> the report documents the tangle of pathology that limits the life chances of poor African American households and their members. That means all you niggas. Moynihan basically argues that while past discrimination resulted in the condition of the African-American family in 1965, 
the family is now sufficiently troubled as to persist in its lower class position, even if there were no more discrimination. The Moynihan Report is considered a foundational text in the culture of poverty approach to understanding persistent racial inequality. To this day! To this day! Patterson suggests that history is proving Moynihan correct. A crisis of out-of-wedlock childbirth disproportionately affects African-American women and children born out of wedlock are more likely to drop out of school and have children out of wedlock themselves. Patterson's solution? Provide intensive intervention for the young children in poor neighborhoods. But here's the thing. You don't need the Moynihan Report to make that argument. In fact, you're better off without it. The Moynihan Report ultimately suggested the pathological conditions in African-American families, not neighborhoods, produce people who would be incapable of education and economic success, even if they did not experience discrimination, right? Patterson's interventions into the lives of children does not address the family. If you wanted to really take Moynihan seriously, wouldn't you need to figure out how to eliminate the difficulties experienced by and within poor single parent households? It was destroying the Negro family under slavery that white America broke the will of the Negro people. Although that will has reasserted itself in our time, it is a resurgence doomed to frustration unless the viability of the Negro family is restored. Matriarchy. A fundamental fact of Negro American family life is the often reversed roles of husband and wife. Robert O. Blood Jr. and Dr. M. Wolf in a study of Detroit families note that Negro husbands have unusually low power. Uh, Big Meech Dad in the, in the BMF series, right? And while this is a characteristic of all low-income families, the pattern pervades the Negro social structure. The cumulative result of discrimination in jobs, the segregated housing, and the poor schooling of Negro men. In 44% of the Negro family study, the wife was dominant as against 20% of white wives. Whereas a majority of white families are equalitarian, the largest percentage of Negro families are dominated by the wife. The matriarchal pattern of so many Negro families reinforces itself over generations. This process begins with education. Although the gap appears to be closing at the moment, for a long while, Negro families were better educated than Negro males, or Negro females were better educated than Negro males, and this remains true today for the Negro population as a whole. The difference in educational attainment between non-white men and women in the labor force is even greater. Men lag 1.1 years behind women. Okay, the Negro family, right? So this is the village. This is our people under post this segregation. This is post King, right? This is after the dream. This is post civil rights, you know? This is, this is the new deal, right? 
This is the New Deal. Moynihan argued that the rise in black single family mother single mother families. Moynihan argued that the rise in black single mother families was not caused by a lack of jobs, but by a destructive vein in ghetto culture, which could be traced to slavery times and continued discrimination in the American South under Jim Crow. This is what he wrote. Black sociolo sociologist E. Franklin Frazier had introduced the idea in the 1930s, but Moynihan was considered one of the first academics to defy conventional social science wisdom about the structure of poverty. As he wrote later, the work began in the most, unortho in the most orthodox setting, the U.S. Department of Labor, to establish at some level of statistical conciseness what everyone knew that economic conditions determine social conditions, whereupon it turned out that what everyone knew was evidently not so. It might be estimated the Negro problem. It might be estimated that as much as half of the Negro community falls in the middle class. However, the remaining half is in desperate and deteriorating circumstances. Moreover, because of housing segregation, it is immensely difficult for the stable half to escape from the cultural influences of the unstable one. This is the Moynihan Report, by the way, family, that I'm reading. This is not my words. I am reading from the text of the report that I was uh, informing you about. Okay. Moreover, because of housing segregation, it is immensely difficult for the stable half to escape from the cultural influences of the unstable half. The children of middle-class Negroes often as not must grow up in or next to the slums, an experience almost unknown to white middle-class children. They are therefore constantly exposed to the pathology of the disturbed group and constantly in danger of being drawn into it. It is for this reason that the propositions put forth in this study may be taught of as having more or less general applications. As I read that, I can't help but to think L.A., Right. And what I saw with Baldwin Hills. Right. And it's right next to the hood. OK. How they have everything drawn right around each other. And the, the same thing is in Harlem. Right. I've seen this before and I know exactly what it is that they're talking about. In a word, most Negro youth are in danger of being caught up in the tangle of pathology that affects their world. And probably a majority are so entrapped. So think about if I'm a, if, if this book comes out in the, if this report comes out in the seventies and then record labels, businesses and everything position themselves, right. As you know, just they, they're hedging themselves against the report. They're like, yo, if this is what Moynihan is projecting and whatnot, if this is what Moynihan is predicting, because that's what business is all about. Business is all about being able to, uh, to, um, to get the information and the data about a forecast of what the future is going to look like and to be able to show enough data sets, and enough proof and whatnot to be like, you know what? I'm going to bet against that. I'm going to bet on that. I'm going to build my businesses around that, right? So it won't, it won't come up to no surprise as to why certain classes of our music was being exploited and whatnot, they were pushing a certain type of image through the media, through these multi-billion dollar corporations, 
right? With this pipeline going straight to prison and going to the graves and whatnot, the insurance, the the, the stocks, and you know, it was so it was so much money being so being made in so many ways, especially when you have an understanding of how the stock market runs. Then you realize that the levels of games that these people are playing on, because they understand how to make money out of your uh, misfortune and whatnot. You know what I'm saying? They understood during the war of poverty, you know, how to make money in that war. And making the money in the war was against those who were declared war against. And those are our people. Okay. That's who they were declaring war against the hood, the ghetto, the same people that Moynihan is talking about in his report. That's the war on poverty, coupled with the war on drugs, coupled with the war on terror, right? On terra firma. So it's a war going on outside. So we live in war times. We live in a war zone. You know what I'm talking about? We got to be war ready. The tangle of pathology that the Negro American has survived at all is extraordinary. This is his writing. A lesser people might simply have died out, as indeed others have. That the Negro community has not only survived, but in this political generation has international affairs as a moderate, humane, and constructive national force is the highest testament to the healing powers of the democratic ideal and the creative vitality of the Negro people. Here's what they think about you. But it may not be supposed that the Negro American community has not paid a fearful price for the incredible mistreatment to which it has been subjected over the past three centuries. In essence, the Negro community has been forced into a matriarchal structure which because it is too out of line with the rest of American society, seriously retards the progress of the group as a whole and imposes a crushing burden on the Negro male and, in consequence, on a great many Negro women as well. There is, presumably, no special reason why a society in which males are dominant in family relationships is to be preferred to a matriarchal arrangement. However, it is clearly a disadvantage for a minority group to be operating on one principle while the great majority of the population and the one with the most advantages to begin with is operating on another. This is the present situation of the Negro. Ours is a society which presumes male leadership in private and public affairs. The arrangement of society facilitates such leadership and reward it as subculture, such as that of the Negro American, in which this is not the pattern, is placed at a distant disadvantage. Here, an earlier word of caution should be repeated. There is much evidence that a considerab uh, considerable number of Negro families have managed to break out of the tangle of pathology and to establish themselves as stable, effective units living according to the patterns of America's society in general. 
there is presumably Okay. E. Franklin Frazier has suggested that the middle class Negro American family is, if anything, more patriarchal and protective of his children than the general run of such families. Given equal opportunities, the children of these families will perform as well or better than their white peers. They need no help from anyone and ask none. While this phenomenon is not easily measured, one index is that middle-class Negroes have even fewer children than middle-class whites, indicating a desire to conserve the advances they have made and to ensure that their children do as well or better. Negro women who marry early to uneducated laborers have more children than white women in the same situation. Negro women who marry at the common age for the middle-class to educated men through technical or professional work, have only four-fifths as many children as their white counterparts. The poorer performance of the male in school exists from the very beginning, and the magnitude of the difference was documented by the 1960 census and statistics of the number of children who have fallen one or more grades below the typical grade for children of the same age. The boys have more frequently fallen behind every age level. White boys also lag behind white girls, but at a differential of one to six percentage point. In 1960, 39% of all white persons 25 years of age or over who had completed four or more years of college were women. 53% of the non-whites who had attained this level were women. However, the gap is closing. By October 1963, there were slightly more Negro men in college than women among whites, there were almost twice as many men as women enrolled. There's much evidence that Negro families are better students than their male counterparts. I mean, the Negro females. There's much evidence that Negro females are better students than their male counterparts. Daniel Thompson of Dillard University in a private communication on January 6, 1965 writes, as low as is the aspirational level among lower class Negro girls, it is considerably higher than among the boys. For example, I have examined the honor rolls in Negro high schools for about 10 years. As a rule, from 75 to 90% of all Negro honor students are girls. Dr. Thompson reports that 70% of all applications for the National Achievement Scholarship program financed by the Ford Foundation for Outstanding Negro High School graduates are girls, despite special efforts by high school principals to submit the names of boys. Historically, the matriarchal Negro society, mothers made sure that if one of their children had a chance for higher education, the daughter was the one to pursue it. The effect on family functioning and role performance of this historical experience, economic deprivations, is what you might predict. Both as a husband and as a father, the Negro male is made to feel inadequate, not because he is unlovable or unaffectionate, lacks intelligence, or even a gray flannel suit, 
But in a society that measures a man by the size of his paycheck, he doesn't stand very tall in comparison to his white counterpart. To his situation, he may react with withdrawal, bitterness towards society, aggression both within the family and a racial group, self-hatred, or even crime. Or he may escape through a number of avenues that help him to lose himself in fantasy or to compensate for his low status through a variety of exploits. So exploits could be exploiting women, right? Exploiting women, huh? you know, black exploitation. Thomas Pettigrew said the Negro wife in this situation can easily become disgusted with her financial dependent husband and her rejection of him further alienates the male from family life. Embittered by their experiences with men, many Negro mothers often act to perpetuate the mother-centered pattern by taking a greater interest in their daughters than in their sons. Denton Brooks said, in a matriarchal structure, the women are transmitting the culture, right? The misuse of the Moynihan Report. On August 34th, 2015, New York City Police Commissioner Bill Bratton controversially declared that he had discovered the cause of a recent crime wave in a 50-year-old government report written by da Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Talk about being president, about what was going on, going to happen in black society in terms of he was right on the money. The disintegration of family, the disintegration of values. I'm going to repeat what I just read because I don't think I read it properly. Talk about being prescient about what was going to happen in black society in terms of he was right on the money. The disintegration of family, the disintegration of values. That's what Bill Bratton, the police commissioner, said about black America. Bratton's remarks made in the broader context of growing outrage against police violence and mass incarceration seem to attribute black criminality to the flawed family structure and cultural values of African-Americans. There are but one indication of the enduring salience of the Moynihan Report the 1965 government document officially entitled The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, which argued that the damaged family structure of many African-American families as reflected in the high rates of he female-headed families and out-of-wedlock births would hinder efforts to achieve racial equality following the passage of civil rights legislation. Family-structured, Moynihan argued... stood at the heart of what he notoriously labeled a tangle of pathology evident in high rates of juvenile delinquency, drug abuse, and poor educational achievement amongst African-Americans. As the author of Beyond Civil Rights, the Moynihan Report and its legacy, I should hardly have been surprised by Bratton's remarks, nor by the half-century anniversary invocations of the report by conservative think tanks the Heritage Foundation, the Hoover Institute, and the Manhattan Institute, and by journalists of various 
ideological persuasions such as Nicholas Kristoff, George Will, and Tainishi Coates. For the thesis of my book, I took the 50 years the Moynihan has generated debate about the causes of persistent inequality in America. It has been the Rorschach test inviting viewers to see in it what they want, as well as a litmus test reflecting deep ideologically ideological cleavages. This is where you get super um, predators from, whatchamacallit, Hillary, Hillary Clinton, who filled in Moynihan's seat in the Senate after Moynihan left. That's when Hillary came in, okay? He held that seat until Hillary came. But that's where you get the super predators and whatnot. That's based off of this and whatnot. That's where you get the Clinton, the crime bill, and what uh, the Clinton and the Biden shit was based off of this as the source code. They used the Moynihan report as the foundation of what it is that they were talking about and why they were justified to put all of these people into poverty that came from these single family uh, homes. Oh, um, we just want to get some information on you. That The first thing that the the, uh, the legal aid even comes when you behind the wall and whatnot, they want to know who's in your family. You know what I'm saying? Is it is it single mother? Okay, no problem. That's what the uh, the... You know, the public defenders asking questions. That's what they want to know, because the Moynihan report, this this is like I said, this is like foundation. This is their motherboard. Right. This is where the whole shit was built upon or one of the provisional pieces of legislation that built this whole thing that we see right now. Right. This is what they built their businesses off of. OK. The most perplexing question about American slavery, which has never been altogether explained and which indeed most Americans hardly know exists, has been stated by Nathan Glazier as follows. Why was American slavery the most awful the world has ever known? The only thing that could be said with certainty is that it is true. It was. American slavery was profoundly different from in all of its lasting effects on individuals and their children, indescribably worse than any recorded servitude, ancient or modern. The peculiar nature of American slavery was noted by Alex de Tocqueville and others, but it was not until 1948 that Frank Tannerbaum, a South American specialist, pointed to the striking differences between Brazilian and American slavery. The feudal Catholic societal of Brazil had a legal and religious tradition which accorded the slave a place a human being in a hierarchy of society, a luckless, miserable place to be sure, but a place withal. In contrast, there was nothing in the tradition of English law or Protestant theology which could accommodate the fact of human bondage. The slaves were therefore reduced to the status of chattels, often no doubt well held for even privileged chattels, but chattels nonetheless. Glazer, while focusing on the Brazil-United States comparison, continues, In Brazil, the slave had many more rights than in the United States. He could legally marry. He could indeed had to be baptized and become a member of the Catholic Church. His family could not be broken up for sale. And he had many days on which he could either rest or earn money to buy his freedom. The government encouraged manumism, man, uh, manumism, manumission. And the freedom of infants can often be purchased for a small sum at the baptismal fountain 
In short, the Brazilian slave knew he was a man and that he differed in degree, not in kind, from his master. In the United States, the slave was totally removed from the protection of organized society compared to the elaborate provisions for the protection of slaves in the Bible. His existence as a human being was given no recognition by any religious or secular agency. He was totally ignorant of and completely cut off from his past. And he was offered absolutely no hope for the future. His children could be sold. His marriage was not recognized. His wife could be violated or sold. There was something comic about calling the woman with whom the master permitted him to live a wife. And he could also be subject without redress to frightful barbarities. There were presumably as many sadists among slave owners, men and women, are as there are in other groups. The slave could not by law be taught to read or write. He could not practice any religion without the permission of his master and could never meet with his fellows for religious or any other purposes except in the presence of a white. And finally, if a master wished to free him, every legal obstacle was used to thwart such action. This was not what slavery meant in the ancient world. It meant evil in early modern Europe or in Brazil in the West Indies. More important, American slavery was also awful in its effects. If we compared the present situation of the American Negro with that of, let's say, Brazilian Negroes who were slaves 20 years longer, we begin to suspect that the differences are the results of very different patterns of slavery. Today, the Brazilian Negroes are Brazilians. Though most are poor and the hard and dirty work of the country, the Negroes do. In the United States, they are not cut off from society. They reach into its highest strats, merging there into small and smaller numbers. But it is true, unquestionably. No, 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 no. So... I can't read every single slide in this presentation. Like I said, it's very structured and deep, right? Um, Y'all can hit me up for the PDF. You know, I'll respond to any uh, any donations and whatnot, you know, because uh, I'm not just going to give away this intellectual property like that, you know, but we'll, we can have a, um, an exchange and whatnot, honorable exchange, and I'll honor that. So... Yeah, but this is good for your research. And like I said, we will be turning this into a documentary, okay? And it will also be an ebook as well. All of our lectures will be rep uh, repackaged, redone, and re uh, reintroduced as a series in the collections of some very interesting ebooks. So look out for that, okay? So this is just going into feminism, right? This right here is very interesting. This is called Universe 25. I suggest everybody do the research on this. This was a scientific experiment that this uh, scientist named John Calhoun, he built a mouse paradise, right? And he did a lot of research on this mouse paradise. And his research have been used to, you know, add on to the research of Patrick Moynihan with his book. And they were able to marry this research together and whatnot and um universe 25 it uh it was able he was able to write a paper called the behavioral sync okay and a research that came out of this 
quote unquote experiment, the behavioral sink is also a very interesting read. And it's been used by academics as well to basically, you know, um, urban planning, social engineering. It's even been said that the modern day housing projects were um, built off of what it is that Calhoun was doing with these experiments in Universe 25 with the rats. Let me read real quick. In his early experiments, Calhoun observed a colony of Norway rats for 28 months, during which time he provided the animals with as much food as they needed, as well as a total safety from predators. It was unexpected that the population was skyrocket uncontrollably to around 5,000 animals during this time of period. However, it oddly never went past 200. He also noticed that the colony split into smaller separate groups of no more than 12 individuals per group. Intrigued by these results, Calhoun continued his work with rats and mice. And finally, in 1958, he created his own lab in the second floor of a barn. The experiment called Universe consisted of creating a series of what he called universes, which were habitats designed to be rodent utopias free of disease, predators, and providing unlimited resources. In each instance, the rodent populations experience a rapid rise in population, followed by a leveling off that seemed to go hand in hand with a variety of unusual deviant behaviors before finally the birth rate screeched to a halt, after which the rodent society would implode and cease to exist. To this day! To this day! See. Calhoun created a complex control environment. There was a large room that measured nine square feet and was split into four separate interconnected pens. Surrounding this universe was 12 tunnels leading to food, water, and various burrows, and there was a total of 256 apartments, able each to accommodate up to 15 mice, all connected for easy access by a series of ramps, like the projects. Four breeding pairs of mice were introduced to this spacious enclosure and were giving unlimited easy access to food and water. This sort of habitat was referred to as a mortality inhibiting environment, basically with the aim of limiting transmittable diseases, providing limitless food, water, nesting material and other valuable resources, and basically doing everything possible to make sure the rats didn't die or face any real discomfort. In essence, emulating the conditions of many humans in similar environments. The temperature was kept at a constant balmy 68 degrees Fahrenheit or more, and the mice have free reign to roam wherever they like within the habitat. Throughout the whole experiment, the enclosure would be kept clean and disease-free with the health of the mice constantly monitored by veterinarians. The only limitation faced by the mice would be that of physical space. This is called Universe 25. And if he could live with these mice and do experiments, niggas, then so can you. 
the rodents spent around 104 days getting accustomed to their environment, a phase that Calhoun referred to as the strive period, or an initial period of adjustment when the mice were basically just establishing territories and creating nests. Then the mouse population at first began to increase at a rapid pace, just as predicted. A phase that was called exploit period. During this phase, the mouse population of Universe 25 roughly doubled every 55 days until by day 315, their numbers have reached 360. It was also noticed that food was being consumed more in certain areas, despite the fact that all of the compartments were identical. The mice began chilling and drinking with being with each other's, rarely if ever eating alone, and the population started to gravitate towards certain compartments where all of the eating took place. This made some apartments and compartments crowded well beyond their intended means. From around day 315 of the experiment, a wide variety of odd behaviors started to surface among the animals. Some male mice who had no social role in the face of the burgeoning population suddenly seemed to lose their sense of purpose and became detached from these natural roles. They stopped trying to defend their own territory or pregnant females. They lost interest in those around them. And whereas they would normally immigrate to other broods, they found none willing to accept them. So they became listless wanderers tending to congregate in the center of the universe where they spent their days mindlessly eating or fighting amongst one another. These males were seen as the outcasts of the society. The more dominant males among these became markedly more vicious and violent, attacking others without provocation and fighting for no apparent reason. Many of these roving males would roam about attacking or mounting, essentially raping other mice indiscriminately, regardless of gender or relation. The non-dominant males conversely became extremely meek and passive, with some of them becoming... Um, hold on. Some of them having repeated attacks by other males while refusing to fight back. In some cases, cannibalism occurred among the mice and they were generally a descent into feral violent behavior punctuated by intense bursts of shocking brutality. Hmm, sound familiar? The final phase of the experiment was ominously referred to as the death phase or die period. By day 60, the population increase had plunged to next to nothing, partly due to the alarming mortality rate that had reached nearly 100% and partly due to a disinterested attitude towards procreation that began to be exhibited in many of the male mice. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar? Does this sound a gen Does this sound like something that we've been seeing in society as a social experiment? Let me continue. 
the male mice didn't want to procreate. That's in other words, saying that the male mice see how they got the rainbow hair in that picture right there. The male mice became species terminus. They didn't want to procreate. They don't want to recreate themselves. They just, it's it's a die off. And the behaviors that we see, we give it titles and whatnot, but. You know, that's the DNA not even wanting to coexist anymore, right? There's a die-off, species terminus, right? So there's a name that they had. The mortality rate kicked up amid all of this turmoil and degradation within Universe 25. There was also a new generation of mice emerging it had not ever been subjected to a normal social upbringing and showed absolutely no interest in fighting, courtship, mating, raising young, or much of anything really. Listen to this. Calhoun referred to this aberrant group of mice as the beautiful ones. These beautiful ones were completely detached from society, had completely lost touch with normal mouse behavior, and spent all their time eating, sleeping, grooming, and preening themselves, leading them to have a fine, robust, healthy appearance with keen and alert eyes, hence their name. Calhoun often referred to these mice as handsome. However, their beauty was only skin deep. The beautiful ones lived peacefully secluded and withdrawn from the rest of the society in less crowded areas eating, sleeping, avoiding conflict, grooming, and not mating in any way, and seemed to be spared any violence that broke out amongst the other mice, yet they did nothing to further the society either. They had essentially lost all of their desire to interact with others and spent their days in a lackadaisical days. He theorized that mice were in many respects like mankind and that in the absence of any tension, pressure, or stress, they had lost their focus and sense of purpose and identity. With the overabundance of vital resources and no need to do anything to obtain them, the need for societal roles or jobs had faded, leaving the mice in a state of being unable and or unwilling to perform all but most of the basic functions of sustaining uh, psychological life, physiological life, such as eating and sleeping. Thinking that these mice, indeed, it could be inferred human beings as well, require conditions of stress, pressure, obstacles, and a clear purpose in order to have a destiny and a desire to engage in society. Right? So when I see these experiments that they did in Calhoun's Universe 25, and then I see the rise of public housing to almost emulate, right? the structure in which this this experiment was um being was taking place in it you know it 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 doesn't even it, I, i'm like it's almost like putting a key in a lock or a door right it all makes more sense now i understand why these projects are projects or experiments right and then we have in society those who come amongst us right and they help to shape narratives and they help with us with, with, with their pen. Okay. And this man single-handedly had so much power. 
in terms of the programming that he was able to do with these shows that he was responsible for as a television producer. This man that I'm speaking about is Norman Lear. There's a video on YouTube of a melanated man who is exposing him as a, a complete culture vulture and a thief who stole his ideas for the Jeffersons, good times and some other things and whatnot. What's happening, right? He is very dishonorable, okay? Small hat, responsible for um, a lot from New Haven, Connecticut, right? And like I said, this war on poverty turned into the war on crime and this war on crime turned into the war on drugs. And these are real wars that people are really victims of, right? But these wars or these proxy wars are nothing but operations from intelligence agencies. These are military operations to, you know, incarcerate, to debilitate, to compromise, to destroy, to disrupt. our communities you understand our communities top advisor to Richard Nixon admit that the war on drugs was policy tool to go after anti-war protesters and black people right tricky dick okay the one who uh was exposed during his presidency in Watergate, right? That's when Cointelpro was exposed. That's when it was discovered. Okay? Nixon gets into office. He brings Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, right, to distribute funds to black families, right? And he puts them in charge of the OEO, right? This is the money that was supposed to be going to our people to turn things around. They wind up pillaging the OEO, right? This is the same person, Rumsfeld, who said $2 trillion was missing from the Pentagon. And this was on September 10th, 2001. The next day, a plane hit the Pentagon, right? $2 trillion, all the way back then. So they, they've been cutting their teeth, uh, pillaging, um, you know, the government for 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 years right and these are the same people whose hands and whose fingerprints or whose fangs were responsible for the death of millions of people in ancient samaria nigga in mesopotamia okay dick cheney a long-term college student who avoided the vietnam he was hired by Donald Rumsfeld, who'd been a congressman but resigned to run the Office of Economic Opportunity. Cheney is a young staff assistant to Representative Bill Steger, who took Cheney under his wing. These two versions, there's two versions how Cheney comes to Rumsfeld's attention. Rumsfeld sends a letter to Steger asking for advice on how to run the OEO. The official story was Cheney spying the letter and writing a 10 page policy mem memo on how to run a federal agency. The memo in Precious Stager, he represents, he recommends Cheney to Rumsfeld attention, whatever. 
how a young Dick Cheney fixed prices for millions. In the Nixon White House, he helped Donald Rumsfeld implement wage and price controls at the urging of their boss. Yeah. How Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld helped Richard Nixon implement the worst idea ever, right? So they basically pillaged the whole um, operation. They robbed American people blind. And um, yeah, domestic spying, blackmail, and murder inside the FBI's Contel Pro. Okay. So these were some very wicked. <laughs> when, you know, people say Cointel Pro and they don't understand how sinister, how heartless, how illegal, how bloody this shit was. You feel me? Like this was hit squads amongst other things. All right. And we know that it exists today, but the way that it exists back in those days, um, you know, this shit nowadays is more laid back, even though they knocking people off, but not at the rate that they were doing it back then. Okay. How Bush's grandfather helped Hitler's rise to power since you want, we're talking about the Bushes and their ties to change, you know. Bush's grandfather, Prescott, uh, he profited from their financial backings and of the Nazi Germans. All right. Skull and bones. Okay. And it takes us into where we are, into the hip-hop world, right? Fast forward. Hip-hop is the new religion, true religion, and rappers are the new American gods. They are worshipped by millions in the name of culture, music, and art, fashion, dance, film, sports, and sex. The men and women, the young and the old, the dark and the light, the angels and the demons, word sorcerers, visual alchemists, decoders of source DNA, Picture painters, game spitters, time shifters, manifestors, investors, performers, reporters, recording artists, universal, no borders, loved by the sons, daughters, and restorers of orders. Amadeus. Then we have our brothers, you know, no shots, no offense, but this is what we consider the diet woke crowd. Like I said, this was in 2019. So we was catching wind of what was going on. So we was like, okay, they, they coming together doing a diet woke thing. Now we share with y'all, you know, um, that there's actually a budget to woke. Uh, woke is, um, you know, that woke is a niche, but woke is definitely something it's a marketplace all right it's a marketplace the woke generation wants to buy from woke stores what's more the socially woke generation seeks out purpose-driven stores and products informed by conscious capitalism from fair trade coffee to retailers so these people are part of woke capitalism right that's a whole new marketplace with billions on the table and they've been scooping this shit up ever since they stepped out, you know, swinging, uh, waving the woke flag and whatnot. All right. A lot of these artists, you know, um, both in mainstream and, 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 you know, a lot of the artists who many people look up to around the world, the big names, the Biggie Smalls, the, the Hovers and whatnot. This comes from, you know, the indoctrination 
and the programming that people received as teenagers and young adults from both black exploitation films, Scarface, and then up to date the New Jack Cities and the Menaces and the Kings of New Yorks and whatnot. You know, this is the this is their children right there. These are the people who grew up, you know, walking in in the, in the footsteps of the Iceberg Slims and the you know the Kenyattas of the world. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> the Goldies and shit like that. The Tony Montanas. You dig the Max? You know. So now they throwing up the black fists, and now they on their woke shit. And, you know, they sell liquor all day. Okay. So these are some of the people who, you know, were responsible for all kind of uh, people. When people want to say devilishment, they were responsible for all kind of darkness that has, you know, a, the dark cloud. They they were part of the dark cloud that uh that blanketed you know our communities and our neighborhoods for for um for better or for worse. You know I won't I can't say on record that these men were um you know what I'm saying were heaven sent. You know what I'm talking about no. All right. Uh, what this drug right here did to Black America post MLK. Right. When it turned into ML Koof. Right. When this shit really turned into Mal Koof, you know, what Heron did, the nightmare that Heron brought to just Harlem alone, the nightmare that Heron brought to the hood. You dig what I'm saying? The, the shit that it's doing to our hood to this day. Right. Something that, you know, has to be addressed It's something that has to be definitely um, highlighted. Okay. You know. And these are the people, these are the names for that matter. You know, these are the vessels. You feel me? Who were behind that shit. You know what I'm talking about? These are the big dogs. And there's more big dogs. You know. There's more big dogs. And they talk about the big dogs, you know. Like the big dogs are cult heroes. Nigga, that BMF series is addictive. I watched that shit religiously on stars. They writing the hell out that story. You know, Big Meech is a folk hero. He's forever um, solidified. He could do no wrong. You know, so the people that are selling the drugs necessarily, you can't hold them accountable. These are just human beings. However, this shit right here, you know, has a long history. And the people that got the people that were behind pushing that shit, you know, they were um conspicuously tied into the Nazis, tied into CIA, tied into all kind of shit, right? The French connection was started with Nazi funds and initially protected by the CIA, right? Uh Marcel has a long history of criminal activity involving involving the Nazi. But there is one crime in particular that gave this city its reputation as the drug trafficking capital, the French Connection. It's an amazing story that begins with stolen Nazi money and ends with corruptions in the 1970s New York. In the 1930s, Corsican mafia leader Paul Carbone realized that there was money to be made on the streets of America by selling heroin. 
he began transporting poppy seeds from Turkey to France via Marcel and then on towards Canada and eventually to the U.S. This route, soon dubbed the French Connection, used Marcelli as a through fair, a thoroughfare, because it was one of the busiest ports in the Mediterranean, meaning shipments were more difficult to detect. The French connection was started with Nazi funds and initially protected by the CIA. A man called Auguste Record worked with Carbone to finance the operation. It is believed that the money Record provided was obtained during his time with the French Gestapo, a branch of the Nazi party. In the years that made up World War II, U.S. authorities were aware of the French connection as early as 1937, having discovered a number of Marseille-based labs that were running more, that were turning morphine paste into heroin. However, the CIA allegedly protected the Corsican gang because of the help they provided in preventing French communists from taking control of Marseille's old port at the end of World War II. It's turned out to be a big mistake for the Americans. During the 50s and the 60s, heroin increasingly flooded U.S. streets. That's shit you see with Bumpy Johnson and the Godfather Harlem series, where he's going up against the mafia and they are moving the doogee. The French connection gradually began to ship greater and greater quantities of drugs to America throughout the 50s and the 60s. It is estimated by 1960 as much as 5,000 pounds of heroin was coming onto American streets through the route every year. French authorities were allegedly reluctant to arrest one of the gang's major ringleaders as he had been part of the French resistance during World War II. The U.S. government tried to get Turkey to reduce the amount of opium being exported, but eventually they knew they had to bring down the mob themselves. The U.S. authorities, with the helps of international allies, clamped down on the trafficking activity and throughout the early 70s, seized boatloads of drugs and arrested hundreds of people. At the same time, many members of the mafia involved were killed due to infighting with other gangs. By the mid-70s, the French connection was washed up, right? So um, Lucky Luciano, right? Lanza explained that their cooperation would be secured by the imprisoner. So Lucky, Lucky Luciano is locked up. He works with the police. They let him out. He starts moving that boy boy. You know what I'm talking about? But like I said, it always falls on the hood. All of this shit that's going on between the mafia and the government and all of these other links and shit. But it's always who's at the bottom of that pyramid. Our people being oppressed and being preyed upon, giving poison. And now we're so sick that we think that this is just a part of our lives and this is natural and this is something that we do and, and it's honorable. Whereas I'm showing you that we being targeted by you know, uh, uh, haters of the Moors. This is, you know, the Sicilians I showed you in the video clip a few uh, episodes ago, the the the, um, the the scene in True Romance where Dennis Hopper was telling my good brother, Christopher Walken, that his people, his mama's 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 was whores of the Moors. And then they got Moorish blood in their vein. He shot him on the top of his head. Imprisoned mobster Charles Lucky Luciano, who still wielded absolute power on the docks even six years after being behind bars, 
with his top aide, Meyer Lansky, acting as his intermediary, Luciano agreed to assist the government and ordered his capos to act as lookouts and report any suspicious activity. Luciano's contacts even assisted in the Allies' 1943 amphibious invasion of Sicily by providing maps of the island's harbors, photographs of its coastline, and names of trusted contacts inside the Sicilian Mafia who also wished to see Mussolini toppled. Still, with between 20 and 40 years left on his sentence, Luciano filed a petition for executive clemency on May 8, 1945, the same day World War II ended in Europe. Ironically, the man who had prosecuted the mobster a decade earlier, New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey, pardoned Luciano on January 1946 due to his assistance in the war effort and ordered him deported to his native Italy. The ultimate effectiveness of Operation Underworld has been questioned, but no other ships suffered the same fate as the Normandy for the duration of World War II. Okay. Frank Three Fingers Coppola, the 81-year-old Sicilian Mafia boss. Frank Three Fingers Coppola, a 81-year-old Sicilian Mafia boss who was deported from the United States in 1948, has been arrested by Rome police on drug trafficking charges. He was suspected of masterminding a drug ring that smuggled heroin and other drugs from the main mafia factories near Palermo, Sicily to Rome area. Right? So you got drugs reaching the hood all the way from motherfucking Rome, nigga. All the way from Sicily, nigga. The Havana Conference, when they all, all of the bosses and the bosses met up. You know what I mean? And they built the pizza connection. You had the French connection and all these connections, but that shit connected to our necks. You understand? That shit connected to the hood, and the hood is disconnected as a result of that. Talk back to me. All them connections. We ain't benefiting that. You niggas ain't in the mafia. You know what I'm talking about? So like I said, it's a lot of research and I can't read everything verbatim, although I wish I would, you know, shit. I definitely wish I would, you know, but this will show this will be in a documentary. This is all all of this research will be um, delivered in a, in a, in a docu series format that will blow your fucking mind, you know. So let's just. uh you know, give it up for that. And, you know, just know that when that comes, it's going to, you know, it's going to do what it's supposed to do. Okay. So there's an epidemic in Nigeria with syrup, liquid heroin. Zimbabwe is going through a codeine cough syrup epidemic. Nigeria got an epidemic, right? Shout out to ASAP Yams. The rappers over here, there's an epidemic. We losing good people, right? There's some good people. You know what I'm talking about? Good people dying in their sleep and whatnot. You feel me? Capital Steves, the legend, right? Apparently a suicide, you know? Losing good people, man. So we got these rappers saying that they putting the lean down, you know, Chance the Rapper. 
Xanax is the new heroin. Don't let them fool you. You know, Travis Scott, Smoke Perp, you know, all of these rappers talking about they going clean, but, you know, the lyrics don't say it. They, they it's, it's tweets, you know, woke tweets. You know what I mean? It's been taking a lot of lives of our people, right? ODB, DJ Screw, Michael Jackson, Prince, baby. You know what I'm talking about? Belia Cohen is still, he's still in the midst of the whole epidemic. He's still signing niggas that's pushing them motherfucking pills that Molly Perkins says, right? It's doing more work than the Ku Klux Klan was doing, right? But then when you talk about these drugs and whatnot, especially that cocaine and that shit that's coming from across the border that our people are addicted to, like that's tied into some dark shit. You feel me? That's coming from some places where that motherfucking magic is real dark. It's tied into a lot of places in them in, in, in them jungles and whatnot of South America and shit like that. A lot of blood, a lot of dark magic. You feel me? A lot of that shit is inside of, you know, it's a lot of things, man. That's why I, I'm I'm a, I'm you know, I'm just I'm here to let you know, man, that's a wicked game. Be very careful if you're playing in it. And if you're not playing in it and you're thinking about hopping into that shit, just know it's spiritual too. And it's, it's, it's triple cross. You know what I mean? It's like trying, you might as well be part of fucking, uh, cause you know, you might as well be part of the agency cause that's who's running it. That's who's setting it up at the top. So unless you want to go and sit down with the, with the uh, offspring of Hoover, my nigga, you might want to pursue something else. You feel me? You really might want to pursue something else. I know crime, true crime is popping and people love shit like this. You know what I mean? But just, you know, admire it from Netflix if need be. You worth more than this. But all of this criminality that we're seeing right here, this is all a result of the Moynihan. This is what Moynihan spoke about, right? This is these are some of the policies that help put it into place. You know, the 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 hands that 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 were behind the heroin, the hands that were behind putting coke. The CIA that was putting all of that shit is tied into that fake ass war on drugs for them to get more money. It's all a racket. Right. It's all a racket all done in the name of M -M -M MLK. Turn this shit into ML Koof. Right. All done as a result of them knocking him off and whatnot. These people right here. Cocaine import agency. Them folk. Who do domestic and foreign work. You know what I'm talking about? Coupe de Tars. The CIA Vatican cocaine connection. Talk black to me. To this day. Bang. To this bang, day. Bang. Bang. Gary Webb, Dark Alliance. Murder Incorporated. Murder Incorporated, Cocaine Import Agency, Jamaica Sour Posse, how the CIA created, created the most dangerous, notorious criminal organization. With the recent violence in Jamaica and the controversy over alleged drug lord Christopher Dutta's Coke, many people are talking about the infamous Jamaican Sour Posse in the neighborhood of Tiffany Gardens and where they had their base. What is also being ignored largely by the media is the role that the American government and the CIA had in training armament and giving power to the shower posse. Come on, talk back to me.
These are Coke boys. Right? They didn't have Coke boys when the King was alive, nigga. They didn't have Dope boys when King was alive. They didn't have motherfucking pimp, uh, nations of pimp, pimp cartels, nigga, when King was alive. Like that. Right? Tied in with the Mexicans. You know what I'm talking about? And these are the these are who we, you know, they they, they groom us to to idolize, you know. These names and these stories. To the point that we don't even want to see the other people in our community to contribute in more. We all grew up reading the same books. So we know about the law of the streets. We know about the law of criminality. We know about the law of the anti-hero. We know that's why we infatuated and we attracted to these stories and whatnot because of, you know, just the fuck who we are. Our Saturnian selves. But a lot of this shit has implications to it. A lot of this shit had, they don't, you know, there's a dark side, there's a darker side to a lot of this stuff that's being celebrated and imitated, you know? A lot of these drugs that both people are pushing and they're addicted to, man, the attachments that you're attaching to yourself, you should be very aware of that. You feel me? This is purgatory right here, and that's where they're sending our people wholesale with no breaks. The underworld, slavery, the plantation. You understand? This shit ain't a joke. Them, them, them people ain't slowing down going to jail. That shit that Patrick Moynihan, he didn't predict it. He set it up. This is a manual. This is a workbook. This is a reality that they have, that the liberals and the policy makers and whatnot, on both parties, this was bipartisan. These are the things that they uphold. And these are the lens that they look at us through. Main points, family is the heart of the deterioration of the fabric of Negro society, the basic social unit of American life, basic socializing unit, right? My niggas, that is an indictment. The role of the family in shaping character and ability is so persuasive as to be easily overlooked and causes instability. Negro families are headed by females. In essence, the Negro community has been forced into a matriarchal structure, retarding the process of the group as a whole and imposing a crushing burden on the Negro male and the Negro woman as well. Number two. There was a long history of discrimination and worked against the emergence of a strong father figure in a Negro family. Right, they're acknowledging it. 
With the emancipation of the slaves, a Negro American family was formed in the U.S. as opposed to the white American family. The Negro was given liberty, but not equality. The most affected was the Negro male. When Jim Crow mandated separate but equal status for black Americans, keeping the Negro in his place, making it much harder for the Negro family. These events worked against the emergence of a strong father figure. So, yes, this shit echoes to this day and is part of governmental policy. Right. And that's what we're seeing play it out. That's not the only thing, but that's definitely one of <laughs> one of the reasons why we see things play out the way that they do. OK. And society plays its part. Right. Because it's working off of a script. OK. Society is playing its part. Media is playing its part. Entertainment is playing its part. Entertainment is playing its part. Right? The small hats, they're playing their part. Everybody is in a part. The directors are playing their part. The producers are playing their part. The executive producers are playing their part. The agents are playing their part. The casting agents are playing their part. The actresses and the actors are playing their part. Script writers playing their part. Cameraman's playing their part. Sound man playing his part. Everyone has a part to play. And everyone seems willing to play their part. You feel me? The United States is in the midst of a heroin epidemic with more people dying from overdose by the day. Look at the history of heroin, though. Right? Look at the history of the opium. Look at it. It's nothing. It's not new, bro. This shit has been here forever. 1832, codeine is extracted from opium. 1839, opium accounts for more deaths than any other substance. What the fuck? 1856, the second opium war between the French and British against China. They've been having codeine dreams for a very long time. 1962, Burma outlaws opium. But in 1965 to 1970, U.S. involvement in Vietnam is blamed for the surge in illegal heroin being smuggled into the States to aid U.S. allies. The Central Intelligence Agency sets up a charter airline, Air America, to transport raw opium from Burma and Laos. As well, some of the opium would be transported to Marseille by Corsican gangsters to be refined into heroin and shipped to the U.S. via the French connection. The number of heroin addicts in the U.S. reaches an estimated 750,000. <laughs> Almost a million. Heroin exportation from Southeast Asia's Golden Triangle becomes a major source for raw opium and the profitable drug trade. And it goes on and on and on and on. Right? And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And these are the people who are strategically placed to profit off of all of this. Right? The lawyer, the jeweler, the car salesman, the real estate agents, the tailor, you know what I'm talking about? The CPA or the banker, right? All of them are set up.
Okay, now we know. All right, now the Bob Marley thing is very interesting, but like I said, I don't, I can't do the whole thing right now. You dig? But it just shows how they were behind it. But yeah, that's to be continued. I just wanted to one once again. I'm just backing up what Blue Pill was building on earlier. I wanted to show the visuals to give you some visuality. You know what I'm saying? To to originality to what he was kicking. And um, put it put into context because, man, shit is crazy. You know, shit is crazy. And we are living in dream. Are we living in his dreams or his nightmares? Is this shit Meek Mill intro? What are we living in? MLK's dream or an MLK's nightmare? Fast forward to where we're at right now as a people and as a society with the industries that we're involved in and whatnot. You know, did they, did they boss up? Was it Dracula movie accurate? I believe it was, yeah. And yes, they definitely killed Bob. They definitely killed Bob. Um, we got into that on a few shows. A few, what, what, what was that? Was that the year in review? It was one of the lectures. I went in and I broke down. I gave you the whole story about Bob. They they try to assassinate Bob. Bob was shaking up the polit the whole political. He was shaking up uh, global shit, global politics with his music and his movement. And they sent Bob a pair of boots, right? Somebody who was affiliated with the CIA walked it in. And the, the something inside of the boot, like a, a a nail or something, something that was it pricked his toe, and his toe later on became cancerous. And then after he became after he uh, was going for cancer treatment, they sent him to Bavaria, Germany, to uh, a doctor that was known as a Nazi, and he tortured Bob Marley. Bob Marley was about eighty pounds. And he was bald-headed and he was tortured before he died. His mother spoke about it and is well documented. He did not leave this. His last year and whatnot was spent in pure torture. Pure torture from this Nazi doctor who was slowly killing him. Right? Unfortunately. And Peter Tosh was, uh, uh, was knocked off as well you feel me and then that whole error right there that that sound that frequency it turned into slackness and what we know today as dance hall yellow man was the art the first one of the first artists who replaced you know when when bob marley star was had fell but yeah man um we going into the three hour mark let me here put my let me put this cash app there for all of my patrons and whatnot, you know what I mean, who send love every every episode. I appreciate every single one of y'all. And for those who have never contributed, you know, I appreciate y'all as well. You feel me? KTL University for the replay. Um, Blue Pill Body That, he made a classic last night. Um, his presentation of the quote-unquote quantum quickening was a certified classic i promise you straight classic kudos to that brother you know what i'm saying he laid out some high science and whatnot 
The replay is available for anybody that was there last night and wishes to watch it again, you know, take notes and stuff like that. Go and check it out. It's available on KTL University. If you got your ticket, you'll be able to get into the site forever to check out that um that content. But um man, I just want to say love and light to y'all. Um, we will see you very soon. You know, we'll see you very soon. We have uh, more information, you know, proliferations of informations and whatnot. But uh, yeah, that part. All right. Yeah. Here we go. Blue pills quickening. Yes, sir. Peace and love and light.